Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Senior Tiger Gao. Uh, as you may know, Policy Punchline sometimes touches on finance, but we're really not an investment or finance-focused podcast. Uh, what fascinates me personally uh, are more of the matter trends of financial markets. Uh, are we in a bubble? Are we? Why are we seeing this anti-establishment? populist sentiments against Wall Street rekindled by the recent GameStop saga? Uh, are people good at dealing with the unknowns and uncertainties in the markets? I'm more fascinated by these meta questions rather than uh, specific stock recommendations. And my guest today is perfectly to discuss some of them. And I'm very excited. Um, uh, I guess there are a group of people in the investment community that are standard bearers of truth telling, as some may say, uh, trying to separate the narratives from facts and doing the right thing for the right reasons. And my guest today is often praised by other investment professionals as one of them. I'm very excited to, to invite Ben Hunt to the podcast today. He is the creator of Epsilon Theory and inspiration behind Second Foundation Partners, which he, he co-founded uh, with Rusty Gwynn in uh, June 2018. And Epsilon Theory, Second Foundation's principal publishing brand is a newsletter and website that examines markets through the lens of game theory and history and narratives. And over 100,000 professional investors and allocators across 180 countries uh, read the Epsilon Theory uh, for its fresh perspective. So uh, Dr. Hunt, Ben, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for joining me today. <laughs> it's great to be here, Tiger. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I, I guess we can start with a very broad question, as always we do on, on this podcast. What is Epsilon Theory? Why uh, did you name it Epsilon Theory? Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, back in, <laughs> back in the day, I was, I was a political science professor. Or uh, I, I, they call it political science at, at, at Yale. You know, they, they, they call it different things in different places, right? So I, I got my PhD up at Harvard where they call it government. And, uh, you know, Princeton, they call it politics. Um, you know, Yale's political science. So it's, uh, it, it, it goes by all these different names. But at its core, what politics, political science, government is, is this intersection of history and economics. And in academia, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of this, right? There's, there's kind of a a divide within political science between, let's call it the, the economic, more kind of quant-oriented side of things and the, the, the historical, more qualitative side of um, analytics and, and understanding our world. And in, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, when I, when I was a professor, you know, I was very much on that, that, that more mathematical, economics, more quantitative side of things. As I've gotten older, you know, I'm 56 years now, and, I've been out of academia for a long time. I've I've come <laughs> much more around uh, to the historical, more, more 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 qualitative side. But the name epsilon theory refers to in econometrics the epsilon term. So epsilon is tacked on to to to, to most econometric equations, right? Most econometric models as the error term. You know, it's the stuff that is not um, understood by your model. And the most, the most famous of these econometric formulas in investing is this idea uh, that, that the, the, the performance of your portfolio 
is comprised of two things. It's comprised of alpha, right, which is your, your idiosyncratic special sauce returns. So if you're running a hedge fund, which I did after leaving academia, that's the question you always get. You know, what's your edge? What's your alpha? So that, that's, that's what the hedge fund industry is all about, edge and alpha. But then most returns, frankly, from, from almost everyone's portfolio come from beta, which is essentially what are the returns off the market or whatever piece part of the market that you're, you're involved in, right? So if you're, if you're invested in stocks and the overall stock market is up, I don't know, 10% this year, and you, know, you were up 10.1%, right? We'd say that your beta is 10% of that return and your alpha is 0.1%. And, and the, the, the fact is that most returns, most, most of what we get out of the stock market is that beta term. But everything else, right? When you're trying to print, okay, what's my performance gonna be? Everything else is just tacked into this epsilon term, the error term. But I gotta tell you, uh, Tiger, I think that so much of what actually happens in markets, so much of what actually translates into performance is neither alpha nor beta. It, it's, it's what I would describe as game play. And, and, and here's, here's, here's how I'll, I'll, I'll describe that, right? So in, in poker, there's the old saying, you don't just play the cards, you also play the player. And, and in fact, yeah, I think it's true, you know, the, the more you get into poker, you realize how much more important it is to play the player than it is to play whatever cards you're dealt. Well, the cards you're dealt, that, Think of that as the fundamentals of investing, the fundamentals of a specific company, the fundamentals of a market in general. The cards you're dealt are what goes into alpha and beta for this four most important formula, econometric assessment of investing. Everything to do with playing the player. You know, who's on the other side of the trade? What is the behavior of investors, large and small, when a new piece of news comes in, into the market? You know, how, do they, how do they bluff? How do they bet? All of that, all of what we might consider to be behavioral economics, all of that is treated as error. All of that goes into that epsilon term. And what I'm trying to write about, what I like to try to think about is, you know, it's not error. It's not random. It's not just, you know, well, I don't know, it's behavioral economics. So, you know, it could be anything. That's actually not true. What we, what we know from political science, what we know from economics and that more qualitative historical measurement, right, is that actually there are rules, there are I'll call it um, standard, <laughs> standard ways that we as human beings are hardwired and softwired to respond to other human beings. And this is an error, it's not random. Our responses to what we hear, what we read, what we would call as unstructured data. 
right, to, to what I like to call as narratives. It's not random. They're not created randomly. They don't impact us randomly. And there are part, they are all part and parcel of playing the player in that poker sense. So epsilon theory is a take on this epsilon term, which is treated as error. But I think if you dig into that term itself, there, there, there's, a, there's so much we can learn to help us not only to become better investors, but frankly, to become better citizens. Because these same sort of models that are employed for investing, and they're always talking about you know, playing the cards and not, just, and, and not playing the player, you see them in politics as well. So it's a, you know, that's a long-winded explanation, but it's a riff of, on game theory, which is another way to talk about the study of strategic interaction, that there are rules for how uh, human beings interact with each other. It's a, it's a combination of game theory and this epsilon term. It's something I've been writing about now for, 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 for eight years. There's so much to unpack there. I guess at yeah. the most basic level, I think a lot of even high school kids or middle school kids heard the very famous story about John Maynard Keynes and he was saying, you don't pick the stock that, has, that you think will perform better, but you pick the stock you know, that everybody else will think will perform better. And that's how you make money in the market. But then at the Another level is, is the narratives, as, as you said, especially I think in today's environment, which we will soon get into, there's more leverage, uh, which makes speculation much, much high risk. And also people feel like they're chasing some speculative bubble in some ways. In certain cases, maybe like Bitcoin, I have my friends who say, I don't believe in Bitcoin. I just believe that a lot of other people believe in Bitcoin such that yeah. I should want to ride this wave. Uh, and, and, th this and, that's, and, that's, and that's entirely rational, right? Yes. <laughs> There's nothing irrational. There's nothing crazy or stupid about that. And, and that, that's what I'm trying to explore here is, is that uh, these, these ideas about how to think about investing, it is important to think about the other players, the other people sitting down at the table and playing the game with you that is a source of advantage, that is an edge. And, and as, as much as it can be an edge, if you, if you really dig into it, I think even more importantly, it can be a source of disadvantage if you're not aware of it. In other words, I don't think it's necessary for, for every voter and every stock market investor right, to be thinking in this, this you know, very in the weed sense about, you know, okay, I've got to analyze all this behavioral data and I've got to do this and I'm gonna be a, you know, a professional poker player, right? It, 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 it's not necessary for everyone to, to, to take this as uh, something that they have to study all the time to think that they can be a decent investor. No, that's, that's, that's really not it. And because there's another old poker saying, right? Which is that, if you've been playing poker for 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's you, <laughs> right? It's you. The real benefit, I think, of, of just sensitizing yourself to the role of behavior, to the need to at least understand that, that playing the player is as important as playing the cards is so that you are not the sucker at the table. It, it doesn't mean that, that everyone's going to be the big winner, you know, that everyone's going to be the, the card shark or the poker pro. The goal with what I write is that for everyone, 
whether you're, it's your, as your life as an investor or your life as a citizen, don't be the sucker at the table. And understand that these, these narratives, the stories that have this regular impact on us, these are constructed stories. They're constructed for a purpose. They're constructed to get you to behave in certain ways. And that's fine, right? You can still go along with that because you think, well, everyone else is going along with that, so I will too. That's fine. The goal here is just to realize that you're being played and not to take that into your heart because that's when you become the sucker at the table. It, it, it's, it, there are multiple levels, I think, which you can approach the study of narrative and the study of behavioral economics, the study of strategic interaction, what I mean by playing the player. You can get into it as much as you like. You can, you know, run a hedge fund on it, right? But you don't have to, to have this, to get into that level, to have this be, I think, have enormous value to your life, our social lives as investors and as voters. The most important thing to know out of this is how not to be the sucker at the table. And, and that's very hard. I mean, today is, we're recording this on April 21st. Yesterday was April 20th, 20th which is 420. <laughs> yeah. And everybody yeah. was saying it was Dogecoin day. I mean, I was having dinner with a, with a couple of friends of mine. There was uh, some of them were saying, I bought 500 bucks of Dogecoin today. He's like, I, I don't believe this will go in, but I, I just want to ride the wave up and then sell. And sure. I said, that's, a lot of people are thinking that. So it better, you better not be at the, at the top of it at, at, when, when, when something like this first. This, so, 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 so Dogecoin is, is a great example of what yes. I'm thinking about because there are no fundamentals to Dogecoin. There are no fundamentals. And it's even hard to say if Bitcoin has any fundamentals. Maybe it has yeah, some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there are, I mean, we better. can get into that conversation for, yeah. sure, for, 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 for sure, right? But, um, but I'll focus on Dogecoin because it's just kind of the purest example. Yes. Of, there are no fundamentals. It is only narrative. It is purely narrative. And so it, 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 it's the, the perfect example in a lot of ways of what I'm describing about it, right? There are no fundamentals. There are no cards to be dealt. It is purely an effort at playing the player. And what I would say, Tiger, to, to, to you and to your friends, to anybody who's investing in Dogecoin, is that there are rules to this game that's being, that's being played. The game, I, I believe, is, is what's called the common knowledge game. So, you know, you can look that up on, on Wikipedia if you like, but common knowledge is not the same thing as public knowledge. Common knowledge is what everyone thinks that everyone thinks, right? What everyone knows that everyone knows. That's common knowledge. And it's that creation of common knowledge, the manner in which it's created, and it is consciously created by what we're calling game theory missionaries, right? So a famous, you know, so Elon Musk, right? Would be a, a, a missionary for Dogecoin, right? It matters when Elon Musk tweets about Dogecoin. Not because it really matters what Elon Musk thinks or not about Dogecoin, right? But when Elon Musk tweets about it, you as a rational human being, you see that tweet and you know you may believe it, you may not. But what you definitely think is that everyone else also saw that tweet, and everyone else will buy it. That's why I will write yeah, the wave. Yeah, yeah. Or, or there's even a level to, more to that. So it's it's not that oh everyone else is so stupid that they're going to just buy it because Elon says buy it. No, no, no. Everyone else is thinking like you're thinking. 
<laughs> everyone else is in, everyone else is as yes. smart as you are. Yes. Right? That's the first lesson to learn at yes. markets, right? That, that you are not smarter. You do not know more than, than anyone else in markets. And in fact, there is always someone, there are always a lot of people who are a hell of a lot smarter than you are and know a hell of a lot more about any subject you're going to get involved in the markets, always. But you can still think rationally, as any of those people are saying that, oh, it's not that I think that, that everyone is kind of hanging on Elon's every word. It's that I think that there are a lot of people like me looking at everyone else thinking about buying lots of this, right? It's, it's the power of the crowd watching the crowd. And this has been a motivating force throughout human history. It, to, to my mind, it's the most important social uh, force in history. Right? It's the power of the crowd watching the crowd. I'll give you a couple of quick examples, right? This is why executions used to be held in public. Right? It wasn't so you could kind of efficiently get a lot of people see the poor guy getting hanged or getting his head chopped off. No, 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 that's not it. The purpose of holding an execution or today a coronation or an election uh, or an inauguration, let's say, in public is that the crowd can see the crowd watching this event. It's an enormously powerful mechanism of social influence and social control. And politicians have known this for thousands of years, right? This is how crusades get started. This is how wars start. This is how you know, cathedrals are built. What's happened today though, two things. One is there's an explosion of media, always on 24 seven media. So that the, the, the opportunity, the megaphone for missionaries like Elon Musk or, or any kind of famous person, right? That, that megaphone is always there. It's always on. And it's always touching millions and millions of people. So there has been a, a technological shift here in the ability to create common knowledge. The other thing that's changed though, is it's not just politicians who do this now. Everyone is in on the act. Everyone, every CEO knows that this is the way to make at least the stock of my company successful, to create a story, to create a narrative, and then to distribute that, to make that become common knowledge. Every social influencer, everyone who gets in front of a camera today understands the game that's being played. Our central bankers understand this today. This is a very conscious decision that was made in 2008 to use what they call forward guidance or what they call communication policy as a new toolkit to try to impact market investor behavior to achieve the goals they were looking for. It's, it's, it, and it's everywhere today. It's, it's the business model of Wall Street, Tiger, right? So you know, what price should we pay for this, you know, this fractional ownership share in this company with a certain amount of cash flows? Should that be a you know, 5X multiple right, on, 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 on earnings? Should it be a 20x multiple on earnings? I don't know. What's the story? What's the narrative that allows you to justify that price? This is the whole wall, the, 
the business of Wall Street is constructing narratives, stories. It's always been this way. Well, we, fortunately, what we have now are some ways to measure this and to try to understand this so that we don't have to be the sucker at the table. Ben, before we get into the part about not being the sucker at the table, I guess yeah. perhaps we can jump in a little bit to the topic of the common knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, I think that the best example to talk about that might be the recent GameStop saga, uh, where a group of retail investors literally took down Melvin Capital, a very established hedge fund. And you in uh, the podcast interview, you were saying, we all saw what we all saw. And, and that is really the, the fascinating part to me. So could you elaborate a little bit on that part well, and, and, well, and what happened? So uh, this, this is a great example, Tiger, and because I, I, I want to focus on, on, on something you just said. You said that a group of retail investors took down this big hedge fund, Melbourne Capital. Is, is that what you think happened, Tiger? Um, I think if- I'm not, I'm not, this is not a quiz, right? I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm saying it is kind of a, but, but but so I'll answer it for you. I think what you just what you just described is what everyone knows that everyone yes. knows. And what I would tell you is that's completely wrong. Please, <laughs> it's completely please. wrong. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Tiger. Right? It doesn't matter that look, retail investors, they were along for the ride. They were, they, 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 they were pumped, they were dumped, they were used, they were abused. You know, you can just look at the volume that traded on, on, on GameStop when it was rocketing up and then when it was rocketing down and now it's come back. Wall Street, and I want to use another poker analogy here, you can't stop me, <laughs> right? So, no, so please. <laughs> Wall Street is a game where the size of your stack the number of chips you have in front of you means everything. And if you play poker for, for more than a little bit, you know what I'm talking about. You know how important it is, not you know, what cards you're dealt, not the fundamentals, but how many chips do you have in your stack in front of you? Because if you're, if you're the big stack, right? If, 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 if you've got $3 billion worth of chips in front of you, and you're playing against enormous number of other people who've got, I don't know, a thousand, 10,000, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, you dominate them. It doesn't matter what the cards are if your stack is big enough. And what happened around GameStop, what continues to occur around GameStop, what is true for, 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 for any, any, stock or security that becomes a meme, that becomes something that gets, that gets traded or that comes into that popular consciousness, right? Is it the story you are being told? And if it's an effective story like, oh, it's time for the little guy to stick it to the man, right? To stick it to Stevie Cohen and, you know, Gabe Plotkin, Melvin Capital, yeah, arg, right? We're gonna be roaring kitties and we're gonna, you know, this is this is our time. Yes. It it's it's a wonderful story. It's a compelling story, like so many great narratives and stories are. It's got a story arc, it's got three acts to it, it's got vindication. It's perfect, right? It's one of these archetypes of stories that we constantly tell ourselves in politics and economics. Again, it goes back thousands of years. 
All I'm trying to tell you is that that's not the reality. But in a very large sense, the narrative, the story becomes the reality. And as an effective investor, you're so much better off investing alongside the narrative than you are reality. All I'm saying is, is that if you start, again, taking that narrative into your heart, if you don't realize that it's a constructed narrative that's being presented to you and sold to you in the same way that Budweiser tries to sell you beer, you're going to take it into your heart and you're going to be the one who's ultimately the sucker at the table. That's all. Ben, so you're saying if we actually look into the data, the trade, the order flows, the trades and, and all the actual details, yeah. uh, people who actually have sophisticated financial knowledge would sniff out the BS and say, it's actually not this you know, media painted uh, what's being told on Reddit. It, it, what happened was not the case. However, we have to recognize in some way that the narrative in, in this particular instance has already eclipsed the truth. Tiger, let's go back to that example you were talking about your friend in Dogecoin. Yes. He says, hey, I, I bought 500 bucks of Dogecoin. There are no fundamentals. I know nothing about Dogecoin. I don't care about Dogecoin, but I think it's going to go up from here. Because why? Yeah. Be, be, because because you know, lots of people are talking about it. Yeah. Right? Lots of people are talking about it going up. I think there are lots of people like me who are going to buy it in thinking that it's going to go up. And I, that I'm saying your friend is 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 acting just like hedge fund managers acted around GameStop. <laughs> I'm not criticizing your friend at all. Right? I'm saying that that is an entirely rational and reasonable approach to trade. It really is. It's not investing, it's trading. And, but, but I, don't, I don't say that in a pejorative sense at, at, at all. A lot of people will. I, I, I'm not saying that pejorative at all. I'm, I'm a trader. Right? I, I ran a, you know, a big hedge fund. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a trader, I think, this way too. What your friend was thinking in those terms is exactly what every hedge fund was thinking when the story about retail investors sticking it to GameStop, st sticking it to, to, to Melvin Capital and the, the shorts around GameStop, that was their thinking, right? If I'm running a hedge fund and I know that, 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 that Gabe Plotkin at Melvin Capital has got this absurd, ridiculous short position on, and we can get into the weeds about this, right? But that for him to have that size of a short position, uh, you know, I ran the short book at my, my, my hedge fund, you know, we were, we were about a billion dollars, right? And, and I would never, ever have allowed that sort of position that Plotkin had set up to, to, to exist. What Plotkin was doing, and I'll kind of get off into the weeds a little bit here, why not? Yeah, right? sure. What Plotkin was doing was he was, he was playing big stack poker. He was playing for GameStop to go out of business. He was trying to eke out that last little bit. He started storing the stock, yeah. I think, when it was $55. Yeah. Look, back in the day, I haven't, you know, I gave all my money back and exited the hedge fund business uh, in, in, the, in 2012. Right? We never lost money for clients, but I was trying to figure out how to do it better, right? And thinking about narratives and stuff. I love short. I, GameStop was a huge short for me back, back in the day. But, you know, what I would do is, you know, you, you, you'd get GameStop, you'd short it at like, whatever, whatever, about 60 bucks, right? And you'd, you'd be right, the stock would go down to $50, and then you'd cover, you'd get out, you'd get out. Yeah. Right? Because playing for bankruptcy 
taking it from, so, you know, Melvin was still short the stock when it was what, $2 it was a $3 share or something? It was so, yeah, squeezing $2 in the last share. bid. It was, yeah. Trying to get that last little bit. And yeah. I, I understand, I, you know, theoretically why, right? Because he was playing big stack poker, meaning that if, 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 if you've got you know, any sort of news, right, you can sell the stock, you can short more. Plotkin and Melvin Capital could always short more and bully the table, right? And, and, and because they thought they were, they, the fundamentals meant that GameStop was going to go out of business, brick and mortar, all that stuff, they could bully the table and prevent it from, from going up just sheer, but just by sheer brute force. That's a nutso strategy to take because like I say, there's always somebody out there with a bigger stack than you. And that's what happened here. Right, so 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 it's very clear what 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 Plotkin and Melvin were doing, right? and so I'm running a hedge fund. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I'm kind of looking around, saying, "Oh, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to get there and 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 and, and, and squeeze Plotkin. I yes. love that, love that, right? But you know, I've got a decent sized stack of chips here. I I don't want to." Go against it because not, he's, he had a bigger stack. Got like, a bigger stack, right? Previously, and it's, it's yeah. not the kind of thing you can kind of, you want to kind of take on, you know, mono on mono. Yes. But instead, imagine, you know, just hypothetically imagine that there was an activist investor who came in, took some board seats on GameStop. And so you start to get a story of how GameStop could recover. Now there's a story. And let's just say, you know, just for the, you know, the sake of argument that, you, you know, because you, you say, well, I'm going to see if I can kind of nudge that story along. I'm going to see if I can suggest to some people, hey, you know, here's, this is a good story. Why don't you think about this? Wow, this is kind of a good idea that you might want to buy GameStop. And let's just say, just imagine, you know, it starts to, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. And you start lots of different snowballs because you don't know which of these is going to become an avalanche. But here's one that starts becoming an avalanche. Now's the time when I'm going to press the long to try to squeeze the shorts. I'm using the narrative, the growth of narrative as my stalking horse, as my way of, 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 of getting a story that people will believe and that has this pull on people's hearts. Oh, it's the little guys, the retail investors, we're coming in and we're gonna stick it to the man. I'm sitting there in my hedge fund and I'm just loving that to death, right? Because it's, it's like having blockers in front of you in a football game. I can just be the running back here. I can carry the ball with, you know, and make some, some serious coin here uh, while I've got everyone else kind of pushing it forward for me. And this, this is how the game works, Tiger. It, and it's, this is a great example you brought up because it's such a pure example of how a narrative can be constructed, a narrative can be encouraged, and then like your Dogecoin friend, hedge fund managers will say, yeah, you know, they think I could give a shit about GameStop. I actually think it's a crappy company, but playing the player here, this narrative, this story, is, it's got legs. People are gonna believe it, people are gonna act on it, and I'm going to go with that flow. 
so what was the narrative initially not generated by you know quote unquote the retail investors so 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 was it kind of a confluence of different people that some hedge funds saw that retail investors were talking about this retail investors picked up steam and then there were big hedge funds that involved in that really pushed up the capital and drove up the stock price is that what happened kind yeah, of a confluence? I, I, I really would i, I... I think this this analogy of snowballs at the top of the hill yeah. is a really good one. I see. And, and 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 also think that again, this is the business of Wall Street. This is the business of media. You don't care which of these stories becomes an avalanche. You just want one of them. You just need one of them to. You're going to start lots of snowballs rolling down the hill. And there are lots of hedge fund guys like me that are watching this, watching for which snowballs start to pick up speed and get momentum. And when I see one that's picking up momentum, I say, okay, let me, let me, let me put a little coin on that, right? Because it looks like it's getting bigger. And that's what markets have become today so much, is, is trying to identify which of these stories, because you know, dozens of these stories get launched every day. It's wonderful when you can identify one early on that has all these elements like the GameStop story had the little guy sticking it to the man, right? you know? And, and it was set up in a way that because Gabe Plotkin and Melvin Capital had this ridiculous, absurd short position on, the stronger the story got, the stronger the story got, right? Because it was really working. And that's the sort of situation that you, like I say, it's a hundred snowballs get launched every day or start rolling down a hill. The game of professional investing today is so much now, you know, let's, let's try to tack on to the snowballs that we think are going to become avalanches. I think what we've all saw since the last uh, March, since the pandemic began, was that a lot of people say the markets are no longer the fundamentals. They're so much more detached from the fundamentals. And I guess in your writings, you've been observing this trend for a long time, which is the financial yep. market growth are way beyond the, the GDP growth. And we can get into that in a bit. But I guess the idea of, of markets becoming more narrative driven is quite at a core of this uh, bull run that we had since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, you brought up two key points. Well, not just the pandemic, uh, you know, Tiger. I mean, take it back to you know, the, the market depths in, um, you know, March of 2009. So the, you know, the stock market is up 600% since, since March of 2009, right? I mean, and, I mean, I mean and, and yet, and yet, our traditional measures of fundamentals, right? Whether you think of kind of the quality of a company, whether you talk about value, as the thing that you want to be investing on, quality and value haven't worked at all over that 12-year period of time. What has worked, what has worked is what I've been describing. It's narrative. It's the storytelling, particularly the storytelling, particularly the narratives that are created by the central banks. And this isn't a tinfoil hat thing, right? And I'm not saying to fight the Fed at all. I'm saying that there was a very conscious decision to create this toolkit called Forward Guidance Communication Policy. And it's incredibly effective because it, because it taps into the way that we as investors and as voters, frankly, are hardwired to respond to these stories. 
to expectations to to narratives and yeah to the to the to the way that the human beings play the common knowledge game and and it's not it's not because we're stupid it's not because we're irrational it's because we rationally look out just like your dogecoin friend just like the hedge funds that were looking at what was happening around gamestop and we very rationally think hmm okay this this story is now common knowledge we all think that we all think this is the, the, the case. And so we're going to act accordingly to it. We're going to act as if we believe it. This is at the core of how humans rationally think about a crowd responding to a crowd. They say it's, 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 it's fascinating stuff and, and, and it's been around you know, for, this isn't some you know, brand spanking new idea. Like you said, Keynes was writing about this in the 1930s what he called the newspaper beauty contest. It's exactly that. But when we have a period of time where we have external shocks, right? The, the, the great financial crisis where our traditional moorings of value and quality, the fundamentals, they don't seem to matter so much. What takes its place? Narrative. You mentioned, you know, the pandemic and the market impact afterwards, you know, what takes its place when, you know, your old um, signposts don't seem to matter very much, when the ground doesn't seem steady beneath your feet in terms of fundamentals? Well, it's narrative. It's, it's, the, it's the intentional creation and our hardwired response to that, our rational response to that. That's what takes over in markets and in politics. It seems that starting in the Greenspan days, the, the U.S. were really struggling back in the early 80s or 90s. People, U.S. was struggling with income-driven growth, and we gradually turned towards finance-driven growth. And that's what we saw, the uh, huge rise of financialization, dramatic decrease of real interest rates. Uh, we're not seeing inflation, uh, fall of productivity, fall of real investments, and rising inequality. Also, partly driven by financialization to and this big credit boom that eventually led uh, to the dot-com bubble, to the financial crisis, and, and right now to the asset inflation. And you've written about all this and many economists have written about these yep. macro financial trends. What do you think is behind uh, all, all this? Is it just because the US is struggling to produce uh, fundamentally backed uh, growth? Is it just that we need a better redistribution policy, uh, more real investments? Um, I, I think at the heart of all of this is that any, any I don't say politician, but I don't just mean kind of, you know, like, I, I mean, central bankers are politicians in, in, in the way I'm describing this, right? And I think that <laughs> we all want to be richer, right? We all want to make more money and have more stability with that money than, uh, than, 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 than we did yesterday. It, so it's not, it's not like that there was some, you know, cabal and this idea that, oh, you know, through shifting in monetary policy and, uh, you know, trade policy and everything else, we can, we can essentially pull forward future growth 
to enjoy today. Because that's basically what, 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 what leverage and financialization is, right? It is, it's, the, it's the pulling forward of our future into today. And if you're a politician, or, or, or again, I'm using that in the broadest sense of the word, where your career or your votes or your, no, your life is going to be made better by pulling forward future growth into today, who's not gonna do that, right? Who's not gonna do that? And, and, and so, so all of this, my view, is an expression of that. It's the pulling forward of the future into the, 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 the permanent present. Right? And, 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 and the, the end goal is for political, again, in that very root sense of the word, political power and success. And, and, and again, that's not evil, that's human. <laughs> it's human. And I, but I do think that it's important that we, we, we recognize that that comes at a cost. It may be a cost we're, 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 we're willing to pay but it needs to be a cost that we wrestle with because I think there are alternatives to this. I think there are horrible side effects, particularly in terms of wealth inequality and ultimately the political upheaval that comes out of that, that are an inexorable byproduct of the system we've set up today. I think it's like climate change in the sense that these forces are major barges Right? It's very hard to turn a barge around. But unless you realize kind of where the barge is taking you, unless you really grapple with that directly, you're never going to take some steps to slow down the barge and ultimately hope to turn it around. That's what I try to write about this, is to, to, to try to get people to think about what are the costs here. To my mind, they are overwhelming costs. But we need to, to be able to, 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 to see that. And that's why I try to do things like visualizing these narratives, contrasting the narrative with the reality, like in the GameStop situation. Because that's the only way we're gonna try to, I think, take the, uh, not be the sucker at the table, again, to use that word. Before we get into your narrative uh, research yeah. and also before that, one more quick question about what you just said. You brought up two terms. One is leverage, the other is financialization. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about repeatedly, both in this interview and in your previous interviews, that leverage is really at, at the key to the recent market accidents we're seeing. For example, Archegos, Greensill, the Melville yeah. Capital, it all comes down to the excessive leverage and who is paying to keep that leverage uh, boiling from boiling over to cascade to liquidity-driven um, uh, financial institutions from collapsing. And, and I guess, so that's the, the leverage part. The other part is uh, financialization, which I guess we can define it as easier access to credit for households, for companies. And you said it's not helpful to democratize Wall Street because Wall Street is its own game. And what would be helpful is to reduce its influence on the democracy and to do that, you need to take the leverage out of the system rather than yep. giving more everybody more financialization. So could you tell us a little bit more about this part, the Wall Street game and also how, how, how leverage and financialization and it, it is really 
not the not the solution. We're, we're more democratization of Wall Street is not the solution to saving the democracy or so on. Sure, sure. So I'll start with that kind of phrase, right? And this was the also came out of the whole GameStop and Robinhood effort, right? That that the that what Robinhood, you know, the online brokerage uh, platform. What, was, what, what they're trying to do, what we saw an example of in terms of GameStop was that we are democratizing Wall Street. And my, my strong view, this goes back to that big stack poker you know, analogy, is that uh, Wall Street, it, it can't be democratized. It can't. And that's not what we should be attempting to do. What we should be attempting to do is to get Wall Street out of our democracy. <laughs> I don't care about democratizing Wall Street. I care about getting Wall Street out of our democracy. And the, the difficulty with that is that, you know, I was saying earlier, we, we, we all want to be rich, right? We all want to make money. And Wall Street is the, the casino in which games of making money occur. Uh, there are lots of these games. Crypto's the latest of these games. And, and, and it's, I, I've made a career on them. Right? I'm a game player. I love playing these games, but I don't confuse it with democracy. I don't confuse it with what it means to be uh, a, a good human being. <laughs> I don't confuse it with what it means to have policies that lead to a, a healthy and happy citizenry. And I think that it's so easy to confuse the two, to conflate the two. And that's where we get into financialization. See, Tiger, they're, they're, they're only, all of financial innovation, right? Whether it's crypto, whether it's, it's uh, you know, ETFs, it, 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 it all boils down to two things, right? It, anything new under the sun in the financial world is either an attempt to securitize something, that is to take a real world thing and turn it into a piece of paper or an electronic <laughs> thing that we can trade back and forth, that's securitization, or it's a way of, of, of allowing for leverage. For borrowed money. That, that's all leverage is, is borrowed money. And everything in, there's only one exception to this in terms of financial innovation, and that's the ATM, right? the automatic <laughs> teller machine. Right, right. So that, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a famous quote from, from Paul Volcker, yeah. who's the, uh, the Fed chair yeah. before, before Greenspan, right? Which it's hardware, the, so. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the ATM it's, it's, is the only example yeah. of financial innovation. It wasn't an effort either to securitize something or to turn into a piece of paper that we could, we could trade or an effort to, to find a new way to apply leverage, which is borrowed money. Yeah. So everything that Wall Street introduces, every idea that they have, it's all on one of these two things. Securitize something, like what is Bitcoin? It's a securitization of a distributed ledger. And that's, what, that's what Bitcoin is. You know, everything, so much is designed, you know, to, to, to allow you, you to, to allow an entity to borrow more money, to, to apply borrowed money to something. 
at its core, that's what we've got a system today that is so geared towards, yes, securitization, but even more so it's geared to leverage. How does that play out? One way it plays out is that it allows investors like Melvin Capital get an enormous stack of chips <laughs> or a convicted felon of a hedge fund manager Bill Wong. Like, like, like Bill Wong, right, to accumulate billions more in borrowed money. To trade. It's, it's, it, yeah. this, this is the system we're in, right, where, 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 where Bill Wong, who uh, pled guilty to criminal charges, not civil charges, criminal charges of fraud and stock manipulation, he forms a quote-unquote family office, right? And I'm, I'm using air quotes here. You've probably heard it. It's because it's just like a hedge fund. Around family yeah. office, which yeah. is a hedge fund, except it doesn't have the same sort of regulatory uh, requirements around yeah. it because you're saying, oh, no, no, it's my money, which is BS for one thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that aside. Yeah. And then he's able to borrow tens of billions of dollars against that position. And he's not alone, right? The, the story to take out of this is, is, is not that, you know, Bill Wong is, is, is an anomaly. It's that Bill Wongs are everywhere today. It's representative of the game at Wall Street. Absolutely right. Now, <laughs> the, the reaction, you know, you think this, well, well how can this be, right? I mean, I mean, isn't that crazy for all these banks to lend all this money to Bill Wong? And you, you, you saw where, right? So the across the different banks that were lending him money, you know, there probably is going to be about anywhere from six to ten billion dollars in losses yeah. that are going to go to those banks. And you think, know, wow, that, 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 that's you're going to cut down on this activity. I, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, that that these banks are going to keep kind of lending money out like this. Oh, no, no, no. It's only accelerating. It's only accelerating. Why? Because at the same time where we have a, a, a system, right, that allows for massive leverage to be accumulated by these private pools of capital, the same time we have that, we have the price of money being essentially zero. Right, the price of short-term money. This is this is this is our you know short-term interest rates are still zero, essentially zero. So with the price of money at zero, with a demand for money by these private investors, say, oh, this there's never been a better time in the history of the world to try to become a billionaire. Right, I can borrow a ton of money and I'll put it on black or red on the on the roulette table. I'll put it on Dogecoin, right? Let me let me let me borrow, you know, ten million dollars, which you can do, and let me buy Dogecoin with it. If I'm wrong, all right, I lost borrowed money. I didn't lose my own money. I lost borrowed money. And if I'm right, and I'm, I'm a billionaire, billionaire yeah. right? Now, who wouldn't do that? And you think, well, why would the banks lend them this money? It seems like all the risks on the banks. The banks do this because they will not go out of business. Be, be, this is the whole notion of 
systemically important financial important. institutions, right? Yes. Uh, CIFIs, right? Which is which too is destroyed in law. This is too big to fail. Exactly right, Tyler. So you've got a system where the price of money is zero. The the lenders cannot fail. It, it, you cannot have a Bear Stearns moment, as we did in May of 2008, when one of the big investment banks on Wall Street went bust. Right? There is no penalty for making egregious errors. You, know, you think Credit Suisse is going to go out of business? No. <laughs> Credit, Suisse, Credit Suisse, over the last 10 years, has paid $9 billion in legal fines and settlements over the stuff they've gotten caught at. And now I'm not counting the billions of dollars that they've lost on Archegos, the billions of dollars they've lost on, on, on Credit Suisse. And yet there will always be two big banks in Switzerland. That, I mean, it's basically in the, it's essentially the law of Switzerland is there will be two big banks. And so they can't go out of business no matter how egregiously poorly they run their business. And it's a wonderful time to be a Bill Wong today in terms of regulation and transparency. So there is no regulation essentially, or very little regulation. There is no transparency. You can hide this stuff and do it all as you like. And if you're right, if you roll the dice and you're lucky with Dogecoin or whatever, you're- You got, you got it. You got yeah. it. You got it. So, so that's the world we're in right now. It's a world of overwhelming leverage. And that's why I do think that the way out here, twofold. One, I do think that that you know interest rates should not be zero. I do think that central banks should start raising interest rates. I, I think it would spur productivity in this country. I think it would reduce the financialization and the, the, the enormous divide we have between the ultra wealthy and everybody else. I think we do all things. Would 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 stock market prices go down? Yes, they would. Yes, they would. That is the price you would pay for this, just like as we did in Q4 of 2018. I think that's a price worth paying. I do, but it's a hard choice to make because you're probably familiar with this this phrase in crypto. You know, number go up, right? This would be a number go down, you know, policy. Yeah, the when the Fed starts raising interest rates. Number go down. Yeah. Number doesn't go up. Number go down. So you know, I'd like to see that happen, but but I, I understand that that politically, again, in the broadest sense of the word, it's untenable. So it's it's very difficult to say. Yeah, I'm going to raise your taxes. Right. I mean, Walter yeah. Mondale passed away uh, a, a few days ago. Right. And that was his famous line in the um, 1980 campaign with with, with Ronald Reagan where uh, Mondale came up and said, all right, we're both going to raise our, we're both going to raise your taxes, talking about him and Reagan in the campaign. He won't tell you, I just did. And so <laughs> he was being brave and bold and telling America yeah. what they wanted, you know, they didn't want to hear it, but you know, this is the tough leadership of America. <laughs> and he got drowned, he Sleeping got killed and <laughs> slaughtered. And you know, you hear Mondale yeah. talk about it and, 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 and he kind of laughs about it. He's, yeah, I'm just a wonderful guy, right? Is it like I was telling America we're gonna, you know, eat spinach, and the other yeah, guy was saying it's morning <laughs> in America, and so of course I lost. I got killed. 
And it's the yeah. same thing with saying, oh yeah, we need to raise interest rates. I, I think that is the thing to do. But um, nobody's going to do it. Nobody in the political It's industry. not even about Democrats versus Republicans. It's just like the, no, the deficits. Exactly. Uh, the exactly. Democrats would do a two trillion and uh, uh, Republicans yeah. do a three trillion. You can't really tell the part between, you know, all, all that's these exactly. Yeah. But see, I do, Tiger, I do think there are some things that can be done, right? Short of the politically impossible, which is to, to raise the price of money. I do think it's possible to, oh, so, so, so here's an idea, so a, a, a friend of mine, another famous short seller, his name's Mark Cahodes, uh, he, he floated this idea in this podcast I was on the other day and I, I thought it was really smart. So, you know, in every professional sports league today, pretty much every professional sports league, there's this idea of a luxury tax, right? That, that, that you as an owner of a team, you can, you know, we're not going to collude. We're not going to try to keep contract prices down. You can, you can spend as much as you like. But, but if, if you spend so much money on your team above some, some threshold that we, the owner, set, you've got to pay a tax. You've got to pay a penalty. The luxury tax going to the league and the other owners goes to the other owners. So I actually do think that there's, there's room for a leverage tax. Not, I'm not, this is not a transaction tax. This is not a tax on every transaction, which I think is a horrible idea. But I do think that taxing large amounts of borrowed money that are placed into the investment world, and it would be different rates and kind of different leagues you're playing on, right? You know, the, the luxury tax at the NBA is different than the luxury tax in Major League Baseball. Just like I think the luxury tax for borrowing money for an equity investment strategy would be different than borrowed money in a, you know, a treasury strategy where you really have to borrow a lot. But I do think that there's room for regulatory attachment of not a luxury tax, but a leverage tax. I think that's a really interesting idea to explore. I think there are other some really easy things to do, like uh, if, if, if your friend, I don't know what he's trading, you know, Dogecoin, <laughs> you're right, you know, but, but let's say that that is another friend is trading GameStop. Almost without a doubt, they've opened up a Robinhood account to yeah. trade, to, 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 to trade GameStop or whatever meme stock they, 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 they want to look at. You're the default for when you open an account on Robinhood is what's called a margin account. You may not use margin. Margin, again, is another word for borrowed money. <laughs> it's another word for leverage. Like I say, everything under the sun is just a way to get you to borrow more money. Uh, that's the default, is that you are set up as a margin account. And the, and the way they, they, the way they get you, right? The money that you borrow is that you click the box that say, yes, I want to trade my account right now. I want instant credit. I'm not going to wait the three days for my transfer, bank, bank, my bank uh, transfer to get credited. To, to get the money in. Right? Yeah. And they don't, game, Robinhood doesn't describe this as you borrowing money from them, but that's what you're doing. When they let you trade instantly when you open the account, you think, oh, I posted my money, so that's my money. No, no, no. No, no, no. So that's credit. That's credit. And that's the same that's thing credit. Yeah, in, in Coinbase, in, in crypto exchanges, this whole instant trading thing, democratization of all, all of this, 
That's right. Credit. It is under the store, but, but that's the story, right? We're democratizing trading. What they're doing is they're signing you up for a margin account, which has an entirely different set of rules, like, oh, you can't buy GameStop today because we're suspending trading, or, or oh, you know, we, we can, you know, this gets into a very long, detailed question. Legal, Reapothecation yeah. and borrowing and stock shorting and the like. My point is that by default, by custom, by intentionality, you are set up on a margin account on Robinhood or Coinbase or everything else with a very different set of rules. And those rules are not to your advantage. And that is something that can be regulated. Right. It, it, you know, they're, they're, is it convenient for you to trade immediately on your Robinhood account? Yeah, sure. Is it good policy? No, I don't think it is for the reasons I just described. I think there are a lot of little steps we can take like that to change the culture of leverage, to change the what's allowed, frankly, in terms of tricking you into taking leverage and borrowed money and putting on top of that some sort of luxury tax equivalent or really large pools of capital. I don't want to leverage tax on individuals or retail investors. I want to leverage tax on Melvin Capital. I want to leverage tax on family office like Archegos Capital. Those are the things I think we could really make some headway on to start changing the system that don't require us to, you know, do the politically untenable, like actually raise interest rates to, to, to something that makes sense. Ben, I know we only have around 30 minutes left, so I want to get to uh, be a little bit forward looking and probably look at uh, which, I guess, regime we're currently in. You've talked a lot about we've mm -hmm. been in a deflationary de decade. We might enter an inflationary regime. And inflation has been something, I mean, every day you open CNBC, you turn on CNBC and Bloomberg, yeah. people are talking about, oh, is inflation coming? Federal Reserve, infrastructure plan, Larry Summers, everybody's talking about this. So yeah. why don't we turn to that? And also I think that sure. would uh, bring out some fascinating questions about risk versus uncertainty, uh, which, which I think you've written a, a wonderful piece on in Things Fall Apart, and that's the yeah. title of the piece. So would you mind telling us a little bit more of the no, overarching no, thought no, on this? Yeah. You know, Tiger, it goes back to something I mentioned earlier when I was talking about a big, the big barges of uh, economics and politics. And there, I'll, I'll describe three of these enormous barges, right, that have been sailing in one direction for a long period of time. One, one of these giant barges is wealth inequality, the, 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 the rich doing relatively better than the non-rich. And you can, you can kind of track these, these, these kind of patterns. And this is oops, most easily tracking in the United States. You can track it in lots of countries. But, but um, you really see this barge start to sail in the favor of wealth inequality in the United States, really starting in the late 1970s. Uh, so then when you, when you, when you really have the, you know, Reagan and Thatcher come in in 1980, this is a barge, this is, you've seen this been sailing now for, you know, 40 years in, in, in this direction about greater wealth inequality. Now, we're not always that way, right? Before, 
about the late 70s going to 1980, you had you know, post-World War II period, 30 or 40 years of the barge going the other way, where it's less inequality. So everything I'm describing here, these barges can slow down and turn around, but it takes, these barges typically go for a long period of time. So we talked about that one, the wealth inequality, and, and that's the one that really concerns me from a political point of view, uh, that I do think that is untenable uh, to go much farther than we've gone, and, and I don't see that barge slowing down at all. I don't see that barge slowing or turning at all. There are two other barges, though, that I do see moving. The first barge is the barge of globalization. So this is, this is the notion of the world is flat, the notion that uh, we're going to, if you're a corporation, your supply chain uh, should be uh, managed in a just-in-time focus, that, uh, that the, the advantage of making, getting your, your, your uh, production and manufacturing facilities maybe closer to your raw materials, but you, know, you want to do it in the least expensive place, maybe that's China. Likely that probably is China because at least as it started, the labor was there. I mean, oh, let's move it down to you know Vietnam, you know, to, to try to keep this labor arbitrage game going. But it's it's based on this notion of 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 globalization, of borders not really mattering in terms of your supply chains and your 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 your, your business model. That globalization barge, my view is, has not only stopped going in the direction it's been going for the past 30 years of more globalization, that barge has stopped and now it's starting to go, turned around and go back the other way on the river. So that, that, that globalization is, is decreasing. You're seeing this in the increased tensions, principally between the US and, and China, between China and all of its neighbors, frankly. Uh, you're seeing this between the U.S. and Europe. You're, you're seeing this everywhere, right, where globalization is not just stopped, it's reversing. That is one of the big factors, I think, behind another barge I want to talk to you about, which is interest rates. For 40 years, interest rates have been this barge that have only gone down, 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 down. The interest rate barge and the globalization barge pretty well connected. And that's because globalization is a profoundly deflationary force. It makes prices go down. Uh, cheap labor, more efficient supply chains. Technology. Technology, yeah. all of that is deflationary. It makes prices go down. Combine that reversal of globalization, which you know, kind of economics as we say now makes a, a, a tailwind for inflation. Right? It propels inflation higher right? because we've got the absence right, right, of, 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 of this deflationary force. At the same time, we're even now, we're seeing a ton of, I'll call it supply-related shocks, which makes price go up. Supply chains, uh, if, if they break down, uh, you know, you've got to pay more for what supply there is. We're seeing that today so much in, in uh, chips, like right? computer chips. 
so that new cars, I, I mean, A, production is down because they just don't have enough supply for the chips, but you got to pay a lot more for what's there. Lumber, right, for, 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 for housing construction. A real shortage of supply. It turns out it's because of the sawmills of kind of, kind of throttling the supply. It's, you're seeing this all over the place. Plastics, everything to do with plastics. You know, we, we had the big freeze down in Texas uh, and, and, and in Louisiana, where a lot of these refineries that, that, that take fossil fuels and then convert them into plastic rosins and all the, these kind of building components for, for plastics. They all got shut down. They, they, they all had the supply issue. Plastic prices exploding. So we have all these kind of supply-driven uh, changes in, or increases in prices. So the price of all of these goods and services, everything that goes into what we create, that's also going up. Now you say, okay, well, that's temporary. That's going to be a short-term thing. The other big barge, the biggest of all these barges that, that I want to talk about, you mentioned this word earlier, is expectations. What do we, what is the common knowledge? What do we all know that we all know about the price of stuff tomorrow? For 40 years, we've been building or we've been engaged in this deflationary world, which means that our, what everyone knows that everyone knows is that because of globalization, because of technology, well, the price of basic things is going to go down. That also took hold in the, 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 the two most important things in this country, right? Which are autos and housing in the real world. That, that, that the great financial crisis was a deflationary shock where the price of the, the thing that we all care most about in the US economy, the price of housing went down nationally. Something that was thought to be impossible is why you had this edifice of financialization built on top of that. That's changed dramatically, right? So that what you see, what, what I see in looking at narratives and looking at kind of what is the common knowledge about inflation, it's no longer that, yeah, prices are gonna be lower a year from now than they are today. On the contrary, our expectations of what inflation will be, what prices will be, we are accelerating, we're going up as fast as we've ever gone up. We're at, inflation expectations, you know, as big as we've had in 20 years. This is how our world changes. This is how common knowledge exchange changes. It happens with little things, the supply shock here, the supply shock there. It happens when interest rates start creeping back up. It happens when the price of our used cars skyrockets. It happens when the price of our homes skyrockets. It doesn't show up in the official inflation rates, certainly not the price of housing, but it shows up in our minds, in our hearts, and that becomes what we all know that we all know, and that's how inflation takes root. This is the behavior of inflation, not the, you know, it's not just the fundamentals of, of, of inflation, it's the behavior of inflation, it's the epsilon theory, right, of inflation, and that's what I think is happening. And this is how inflation expectations become unanchored, uh, I suppose. Exactly right. right? They, they, first, they become rooted, right? and, and, and then they grow from there. 
And once they start growing, it becomes like Dogecoin. <laughs> I, I, I'm totally serious about that, right? Yeah. It, 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 the fundamentals don't matter uh, when it comes to expectations. The, the fundamentals matter a lot at first. And then when we say that something takes on a life of its own, what that really means is that common knowledge has been constructed around. And once what? that common knowledge is constructed, they say it's incredibly powerful and it requires another narrative, more common knowledge to reverse it. That's very hard to achieve. Isn't the common knowledge right now that everybody thinks that inflation expectations are still very well anchored and that inflation isn't coming at any time soon because of structural reasons? Um, not just short-term reasons, such as unemployment rate is still high, but long-term reasons, I, secular I trends. I, you know, I, I don't think my, um, my mother or my neighbor would ever use the word inflation expectations. Yeah. It, it, we, 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 I'm sorry, I'm going Tiger, you and me, we live in this very tiny little cloistered world where, you know, we, we, you know, we know who Jay Powell is and we know <laughs> what he said at a press conference. Yes. Now, what, yeah, what is FOMC imagine, so. <laughs> imagine how small that, 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 little, that, that, that little world is, but we talk as if that is the real world. Tiger, it ain't, right? And I'm using the word ain't intentionally here because ain't is a real world word. The real world is the price to build a house or to make renovations or to sell a used car or to buy a used car, that price is 7% higher in the case of used car since last month. Not last year when we're in the middle of the pandemic, since last month. You, you, you can't get a, an appliance if you're a if, if you're a construction uh, if you're if you're building new homes you can't get an appliance for your new homes they they're just they're backward they, they you just can't get them and that story plays out a million times a day at least a million times a day across every walk of life that is what forms inflation expectations not that's what anchors expectations right not what Jay Powell says at a press conference. And not what the investment bank chief economists say, but what rather day-to-day -day Americans perceive things to be when they go to their grocery markets or whatever. Yeah, and now don't get me wrong. What Jay Powell says is the common knowledge for our little world of professional investors, right? Absolutely, he's the common knowledge. But this is what is creating this enormous, and the last time I saw this was in 2008, right, when I was when there was an enormous disjuncture between what the Federal Reserve, you know, Ben Bernanke talking about subprime housing, how it was contained. The difference between market world and real world. There was this enormous disjuncture in 2008. There was, a norm, there was another enormous disjuncture in February of, of this past year. When, when people said and, the pandemic was fine? Well, when the market said that it didn't impact prices, that it didn't impact the stock market. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, you clearly saw it, it, it hitting the United States in, in this profoundly and deflationary shock way. 
I think it's starting again, not in a deflationary way like it was in 08, where prices in the housing market eventually met reality, or in a deflationary way like in February going into March of, of last year. I think the world, real world is very separated from market world in terms of inflationary expectation. Because in real world, and this is what we track in our narrative analysis where we're measuring every article and everything that gets printed and written and transcripts everywhere in the world, but especially folks in the United States, versus what the market narrative is, which is just listening to Jay Powell, the gulf there is freaking enormous. That's what you're seeing right now. Yep, exactly. Wow. exactly. I see. So uh, would you say you're someone who th throughout your career have developed a skepticism or cr cr being critical of, uh, you know, quote unquote, the technocratic policymaking class who oftentimes don't know what they're talking about? Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, but, but here's the thing. I, I mean, I'm a defrocked academic, right? I, I, meaning once you leave the church of academia, so I, 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 you know, I left a tenured spot, you know, because I was a member of that church, right? I was a member of, you know, I was a card-carrying member of, the, you know, economists. Political scientists. You know, I left to, to start a software company and, um, you know, then, then went on to, you know, start an edge fund and you kind of, you know, look back. But when, it, when you do look back and, and you look back, it, it really is like a church, right? Uh, in the kind of the old school, you know, Middle Ages Catholic church kind of thing. And it's, um, it's, it's a self-contained world that, reifies, I know there's a $10 word, but it, 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 it constructs its own vision of what the real world is. And that vision that it constructs is very real inside that cloistered church. Yeah, it's very real. Uh, and it, it's hard to escape from, but, the, but it is so disconnected from that real world and you know that that's what I've seen, kind of having lived in both, is the enormous gulf between the two. So, so, so yes, healthy skepticism would be a a, a a nice way to describe my view towards, I'll call it the technocratic, academic, economic orthodoxy. Absolutely. Uh, I know we're almost on time, but I guess another quick question I would not so quick question would be the topic of risk versus uncertainty and also just forecasting in general. You've obviously had so much experience in prediction. How do you forecast uh, the known unknown versus the unknown unknown? Well, you know what, Tiger, this, this, this really does go so well with what we we're just talking about, which is the academic economic orthodoxy and the way it's applied to policy today, particularly in central banking. Um, what I mean by that is that the basis of most modern academic economics is econometric analysis. Right? It's how we started this conversation, right? Alpha plus beta plus epsilon, error term. 
And you know, one aspect of that the one that I'm focused on is the, the uh, systemic or systemic, systematic, uh, meaning predictable aspects of behavior that are thrown into that epsilon term that I think can be pulled out to great advantage, right? Like professionally and just as in our ordinary lives as citizens and investors. But the whole exercise of an econometric analysis is based around expected utility. It's based around essentially utility maximization. So phrases are gonna be really familiar to, to, to anyone who's ever taken an economic, a, a, a microeconomics. Yeah. <laughs> so the entire exercise of utility maximization is wonderful and appropriate and the right way to think about so many things in our lives and our world. But it's not the only way to think about such things. In particular, I think that a whole other realm of call it decision theory, which you know, there's a long story here and I've written a lot, a lot, a lot about it, but um, in particular, I think that another approach called uh, Minimax regret theory is much more appropriate for thinking about questions of security, right, war and peace, for thinking about questions of climate change, uh, for thinking about questions of economic and financial stability. In, in, in other words, if you're fighting a war, this is not a repeat experiment. At, at the heart of expected utility calculations, right, is this notion that there is a, a, a there's a, uh, central, a central outcome, right, and there's going to be a probability distribution around these outcomes. So when I'm trying to understand what what good comes out of this outcome, what and what's the probability of this outcome, I just multiply those two together, and you know, kind of whatever action. Has, has got the best good with the most likelihood, that's the action you need to take. Now that's true if you're talking about something where these sort of calculations, these probability bit calculations, make sense. But if getting that probability wrong, even if it's a rare event, and what it means to be wrong is I'm dead, I, utility maximization is not the way to go. <laughs> and I know we're kind of getting in the weeds here and and it seems obtuse and the like. The big point here is that so much of what we do in terms of policy applications is based on this idea that we're going to be playing the game over and over again, and that probabilities and probability calculations are the way to think about a problem. What I'm saying, Tiger, is that when something is, is existential, that's not the right way to think about it. And we need a different way of thinking about uncertain events where we don't know the probabilities or where the probabilities, if we're wrong, have, have existential it, consequences. It's so extreme, yeah. That's right. Either, it's, either the probabilities are unknowable or the tail of, of the, tail. the probability distribution, right, yeah. cat or thin, whatever it is, if it's death, if it's kind of extinction, well, I don't care what the problems are. I ain't doing that, right? I, I don't want to do something that has that risk, even if that risk is very small. 
So it's, when, when I talk about the difference between risk and uncertainty, almost all of our day-to-day -day things are questions of risk, in which case expected utility, utility maximization is, is really the smart way to approach it. When something is uncertain, when we don't know what the probabilities are, or if there's a tail event that is unacceptable, then we need a different approach. And there are different approaches. I mentioned one of these is called minimax regret. There are different approaches that come out of game theory. They don't come out of econometrics, they come out of game theory, which are different ways to think about the world. And I really think that in this world where so much is uncertain, when these giant barges that have been sailing in one direction for 30 and 40 years are now turning around and sailing in a different direction, I think there's a lot that's uncertain. And I think that when, when we have that sort of uncertainty, we need to think about our world differently. And that's a lot of what I write about. So as we gradually come to an end, we, we initially talked about how individuals uh, can protect themselves from being burnt by the narratives. Uh, and also now we're talking about inflation expectations and uncertainty. Yeah. How should an individual, imagine? and by the way, obviously disclaimer here that we're not giving financial advice, investment sure. advice, but, but how should one reason through these type of situation or to, to, to protect themselves, their families? Yeah, I, I think the most important thing, and, and this is not financial advice, this is life advice. <laughs> the, the, the life, the, 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 there are ways, I think, to, to not be the sucker at the table. And that means to, to read and think critically. That doesn't mean to criticize, right? That means to understand that what you are being told it's not necessarily a lie at all, but it is constructed for a purpose. And, and, and you just need to be aware that that is the case. To not give your heart to leaders, even as you give them your attention and your, um, your, 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 your mind. The, the, the other thing I think is really important to think about is that the way we are trained to think about the world in our daily lives and in kind of quotidian exercises of risk analysis is perhaps not the right way we should think about the really big questions about how we organize a society, how we think about taxing and spending, how we think about leverage and borrowed money. I think that, there's a, that there are better ways of thinking than just, I got mine, Jack, and utility maximization. And I think it's long overdue for all of us to start thinking in these new ways. So that's the that's that's how I'd like to kind of end it up, Tiger. It's, it's really about not specific advice. I don't think there is an answer with a capital A. I think that we can improve the process by which we try to understand the world. We look at it with clear eyes and we engage with it with full hearts, which if you ever played High school football, particularly in Texas, you know the phrase, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Yeah. I think that's true for our, uh, our, our, our lives as citizens and investors as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, ben, I guess, so my, my last quick questions would be, sure. one is, one is uh, 
what do you think is the best critique you've heard against your work? Uh, that, that someone may, might disagree with you and say that that kind of makes sense or whatever. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I, I think the challenge, Tiger, is, is always to take a different point of view and to, 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 to ask, well, how do I actually put that into practice? Or how does it, 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 it fit with, with, with my world experiences and my world view? Because I think like, like any human, I see the world through my particular lens and I'm wired a certain way when it comes to investing or the politics, which may not be the way you're wired when it comes to investing or politics. So I, I, I try to step back from my own wiring, but I can never escape it. So I, I, I think the, 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 the criticism that, that maybe I'm too embedded to my own wiring about politics and, and, and investing may, may well be true. I think though that there's, and it's two steps forward, one step back. I always try to, to extract what I think is, is more universally applicable to my application, not than to just my application. But, uh, you know, your results may vary. <laughs> Absolutely. How can people learn more about your work or get involved with, with I'm, I'm, Epsilon Theory? It's, it, it's Epsilon Theory all over the place. So it's at Epsilon Theory on Twitter. It's EpsilonTheory.com. Uh, it's free emails. We've got podcasts on, on, on iTunes, Spotify. So I think if you just do a little search on just Epsilon Theory, <laughs> wherever you're comfortable doing it. Uh, we, we've got a lot of material. Absolutely. So, so my last question in, in the tradition of our show, because our name of the show, the, the name of our show is Policy Punchline. What would your punchline be for this interview at the end? Don't be the sucker at the table. And that's true. Don't give your heart to a political party. Don't give your heart to corporation. Uh, find your pack of people who will treat you in a non-instrumental way who will treat you for being the autonomous human being that you are and that you deserve to be treated as. That's your path and you need to find it. And, and that's uh, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Can't lose, you got it. And thank you so much for joining me today. Just a wonderful conversation to learn so much from you. And I, I highly encourage all our listeners to keep following your work and listening to you. But, but thank you so much for joining me today. Anytime, Tiger, thanks again. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.